Hello, I'm Dr. Joseph Kern, and welcome to A Radiant Moment. Get ready to receive helpful insights and a relevant word for today's world. For service times, live streaming, and location, visit us online at RadiantLifeAZ.com. Now, let's listen in as we bring you a powerful and dynamic word for your life today. This is A Radiant Moment with Dr. Joseph Kern. Amen. Well, let's do the prayer that we pray every week. Let's put our hands in our eyes. Say, Holy Spirit, give me four-dimensional understanding, hearing, and seeing beyond space and time. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. Well, today's sermon is John's vision of Christ. We're going to take chapter one, one verse at a time, and my goal is to complete the whole chapter. Now, you notice there are 23 pages of notes, so if I don't complete, you have it at home, but I encourage you, please, it's taking me hours. Some of the pictures, like one of the pictures on there took me 10 hours alone because I wanted to make sure I gave you the best. I've been preparing for a long time for this. So go over the notes, because what I missed today, you can capture in those notes, and I feel comfortable with that. Amen? Amen. So, you know what? I have a special video for you. Before I even read the first verse, let's watch this video clip on the book of Revelation.
And he that lives, I was dead, but now I am alive forevermore, and have power over death and hell. Write the things I will show you. They are messages for all churches. Come, I will show you things which must be hereafter. That was cool, huh? Come on, let's give a big hand. That should get you excited. So let's open the book and go verse by verse. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must come shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John. With the reading of the first verse, I like to call this God's magnum opus. The word magnum opus means masterpiece. And it is defined as the greatest work of a writer, an artist, or a composer. And truly, Revelation is God's magnum opus. Let me give you some examples. In the literary field, we have, for example, the City of God by St. Augustine. And it is said, the City of God, to be his magnum opus because it's where he stresses the importance of human government as a ward against the sin nature of man, and it became the writing that affected the next few centuries. In the music world, we have an example of Beethoven. His string quartet number 14 in C-sharp minor. I encourage you to listen to it. It's amazing. After hearing this work, Schubert, the composer, stated, who else can write after him? Because this was one of the greatest musical compositions ever heard by man. After a comprehensive study of this book called Revelation, I believe after you begin to study it, it will cause you to make a declaration like the one made by Moses in the Song of Moses. Look at Exodus 15, 11. Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, and doing wonders? And I'm going to tell you that this is how I feel every time I look at the book of Revelation. And I want to give you just all the hours I put in this study and give you a few of the mysteries and wonders that I've uncovered in this beautiful book. The word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis. It means to unveil. It means to disclose. It means to reveal. And I want you to notice that the book is called the book of Revelation singular, not the book of Revelations. Even though there are many things new to you and many mysteries unfolded, yet, according to God, there's one revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen? No matter what you learn, no matter what you see in this book, what God is trying to demonstrate to you is the revelation, the uncovering of King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. Now, why is this book so difficult to understand? Well, it's explained in the first verse, I believe, why. The Bible says that, that this book has been rendered into signs. It actually says that God's angel signified it. The book is explained in signs, in other words. Let me give you an example. You can actually outline this whole book in multiples of seven. You can actually see seven sevens as an outline in this book. For example... The first seven is found in chapters one through three, and it discusses the seven churches. The second seven is in chapters four through five, and it talks about a seven-sealed book. 
The third set of sevens is found in chapter six and seven, and you have seven trumpets. The fourth group of sevens is found in chapters eight through 11, and it talks about the seven signs. The fifth group of sevens is found in chapters 15 through 16, and it covers the seven last plagues. Then you come to the sixth set of sevens in chapters 17 through 20, and you have the seven dooms. You come to the seventh seven, and you have chapters 21 through 22, and it covers the seven new things. Well, you find these patterns throughout the whole book because this book has been rendered into signs and numbers and gematria, which is God's mathematics, play a big role in the structure of this book. And so for some people, that becomes hard to understand, but I believe that God has given us the spirit of understanding. Amen? Here's another reason why sometimes it's not taught on Sunday mornings. Here's why. Because the book of Revelation has 404 verses which contain over 800 references to the Old Testament. In other words, if you don't understand the Old Testament real well, you will not understand the New Testament because it has over 800 references. So even many pastors are familiar with the New, but they don't know the Old very well. So therefore, when they read it, it doesn't make sense to them. But if you're familiar with the Old Testament, it makes a lot of sense. Amen. But God promises that we can understand this book. We call it God's phone number. You want to know what God's phone number is? Jeremiah 33.3. It says, call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knewest not. So, no matter how difficult it may seem, we can have understanding because God promises us understanding. And according to Jesus, every verse from Genesis to Revelation speaks of him. Here, look, let's look in John chapter 5, verse 39. It says, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Isn't that amazing that Jesus said every verse is speaking about Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. That's why the book is called The Revelation, God's magnum opus, because it's revealing that it's all about his son, Jesus. Amen? So what am I going to do? It might take a year, I'm not sure. But I'm going to teach the entire Bible using God's magnum opus, the book of Revelation, as our text. In other words, in order for you to understand the New Testament, you've got to understand the Old Testament. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to teach you the whole Bible using the book of Revelation as my text. Amen? Come on. And you obviously are in a hurry. You're ready for it. Amen? All right. We find the purpose of the book in Revelation 1, verse 1. It says, to show unto his servants things that must shortly come to pass. In other words, the purpose of this book is to reveal to his servants the things that must soon take place. The Greek word for shortly is intake. It means must come to pass with rapidity. It's interesting because this is the same Greek word from which we get the word tachometer, the instrument used to determine the speed of an engine. When going on a trip, the first mile marker comes by slowly, but as you increase the speed, those mile markers come by faster and faster. This is how the events in Revelation happen. As time progresses, the events will come to pass with more rapidity. And that's the word shortly, that shortly these things will come to pass even faster as time approaches. Amen? The author of the book is the Apostle John in that verse that we already read, the first verse, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ unto his servant John. So we know the author. Let's do a little bio on John in case you're not familiar with the apostle John. It's kind of, 
humorous. In John chapter 19, verse 26, he introduces himself in the gospel of John as the one who Jesus loved. So how many you know if you're writing the book, you can, you can write that Jesus loved you the most, amen? So that's how he describes himself in the book of John, that God, Jesus loved him a lot. Um, John was also part of Jesus' inner circle, and this is a term that's used for theologians recognize that there was a group of three that Jesus hung around with. They were his inner circle. They were his friends, and James, or Jesus was a part of that along with his brother James and Peter. And this inner circle experienced things with Jesus that none of the other disciples did. That's why they're called his inner circle. Let me give you two examples. For example, in Mark chapter 5, verse 37, excuse me, we find that John was one of the three to witness the resurrection of Jairus' daughter. Jesus didn't invite all the apostles, only the inner circle. Another example is, when, is in Matthew chapter 17, verse 1. John was one of the three to witness the transfiguration. And that's when Jesus, the Bible says he appeared in his glory and even told the other disciples, don't tell the others until after my resurrection, what you've experienced. That's why, and John was a part of that, that inner circle that, uh, of Jesus. It's fascinating, in John chapter 19, verse 26 through 27, we find that Jesus actually committed his care of his mother to John. It was responsible the oldest to take care of the elders, and Jesus at the cross gave that over to John. You might remember the passage. It's where Jesus looked at his mother and said, Mother, behold your son. People think he was talking about himself. No, he's talking to John. Then he looks at John and says, John, behold your mother. In other words, she's in your care now. I trust her. And that's very beautiful. In John chapter 20, verse 4, we find that John outran Peter to the tomb. He obviously was one of the youngest because he outran Peter. In John chapter 21, verse 7, he was also the first to recognize the risen Savior when they were on that fishing trip. And in Acts chapter 4, verse 13 through 23, we find that John suffered persecution in the early church, that he, along with Peter, were highly persecuted by the Sanhedrin, which was the religious body of the Jewish nation at that time. And finally, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, he eventually was banished on the island of Patmos, where the whole scenery of the book of Revelation takes place. Now, according to the early church father, Tertullian, in his work, The Prescription of Heretics, he says it was during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian, after having spent time in prison in Rome, that John was sentenced, listen to this, to be boiled in oil at the Colosseum. So John, for preaching, was placed in a, a pot of oil, if you will, However, according to this historic event recorded, he endured no harm, our suffering from the scalding oil. In fact, it is said that all in the entire Colosseum, the audience that witnessed was actually converted to Christianity upon witnessing this miracle. Yeah. So Domitian, he says, since I can't kill you, I'll just put you somewhere where no one can hear you. And so that's exactly what happened. John was then banished by the Roman authorities to the Greek island of Patmos, where he wrote the book of Revelation, and where it is said he was later freed. Now, the worst political prisoners were taken to Patmos. 
which is an island in the Aegean Sea. It was located 24 miles off the coast of Asia Minor, now Turkey, and 60 miles from Ephesus. It was 10 miles long, the island, and six miles wide, and its coast was jagged rocks. Now, John lived in an abandoned cave on top of the island Acropolis, overlooking the Aegean Sea. In fact, there was a niche there where John slept. It was called the Cave of Revelation. You're actually looking at the actual cave um, if you look at your PowerPoint in the slide, and you'll also see the monastery that's built over the cave where he slept, that dang cave. Fascinating little tidbit. In 2 BC, the island was dedicated to Hermes, the messenger of the gods. I find it interesting that it was, de- it was dedicated to Hermes, the messenger of the gods, and that's the place where God chose to give his message to John. Fascinating. I think God loves to play with people in, in, in history. It's fascinating. Now, John, while he's going through this, we find in verse 9 that he calls his trials tribulation. Look at I, John, who also am your brother, in companion in tribulation. Now, why do I find that fascinating? Because we will find out that the majority of the book is about the seven years of tribulation. And yet he says, what I'm going through, I'm a partner in tribulation along with you. He is the only original apostle who was not martyred. In fact, he's the only apostle to escape a violent death. And I think... It's good at this time to tell you what happened to the disciples. I think because when you discover what they all went through, you have a greater appreciation for the book of Revelation, and you begin to understand why God allowed him to live because they all died a violent death. So let's take time in honoring them and talk about what happened to all the disciples. Let's take James, for example, the first one. He's also known as the son of Zebedee. He's known as the greater and the son of thunder. And I'm giving you their pseudonames and their nicknames because there's, for example, three different James that were disciples. But we're talking about the son of Zebedee, the brother of John. He was executed by Herod in 44 AD, and he's the only one of the original apostles where where his death is recorded. It's found in Acts chapter 12, verse 1 through 2. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. Now, so this is the only recording of an apostle being killed, which is actually good in one sense. And you're saying, why is that good? Because it proves that all the books of the Bible were written in an early date because they were written before they were killed. Are you following me? So that's another proof that these books were written before one, um, 100 AD. Kind of interesting. Let's look at Andrew, the next disciple. He went to the land of the man-eaters, which we now know as Russia. Christians there claim him as the first to bring the gospel to their land in fact, the Orthodox, the Orthodox Christians, that's their main saint in Russia. He also preached in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and in Greece, where he is said to have been crucified on an X-shaped cross called a sat- saltire. In fact, many people call that cross Andrew's cross. It is said that he continued to invite people to know Jesus even as he died. Now, remember, the crucifixion was a was two to three death, a two to three day death. Can you imagine being on this and you're still bringing people to the altar while you're on the cross? Thomas, also known as Doubting Thomas. And I always feel sorry for him because what a horrible way to be remembered. But in the church, that's what we always remember him as. Because he's the one who said, I won't believe unless I put my finger through the marks of the Lord. But he was probably most active in the area east of Syria. Tradition has him preaching as far east as India, where the ancient Marthoma Christians revere him as their founder. They claim that he died there when pierced through with the spears of four soldiers. We now come to the Apostle Philip. 
It is believed Philip had a powerful ministry in Carthage in North Africa and then in Asia Minor where he converted the wife of a Roman proconsul. In retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested and cruelly put him to death. You, we now come to Matthew, who's also known as the tax collector. He is the writer of the Gospel of Matthew, and he ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. Some of the oldest reports say he was not martyred, while others say he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. So we have various reports on Matthew. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, he was also known as the son of Israel. He had a widespread missionary travels attributed to him by tradition. That, and it, the tradition says that he went to India with Thomas, then back to Armenia, and also to Ethiopia and southern Arabia. There are various accounts of how he met his death as a martyr for the gospel, but it is said he was beaten and crucified on a cross. It's interesting how many of the disciples were killed in the same manner that Christ was on a cross. We now come to James, the second James, also known as the lesser, and he's also known as the son of Alphaeus. He is one of at least three James referred to in the New Testament. There is some confusion as to which is which, but this James is reckoned to have ministered in Syria. Early tradition suggests that he was beaten and stoned to death. Now we come to Judas, also known as the son of James. His name is also, some other pseudonyms is Labius. Other nicknames are Thaddeus and Jude. Tradition says he went as far as Persia and Syria as an evangelist. He was killed with an axe for doing so. We now come to James, the greater, the overseer of the Jerusalem church. He's also known as the just. He's also known in the scripture as the brother of the Lord because Genetically, he is related to Jesus. He is the son of Mary. He's the half-brother of Jesus. And many historians said he actually looked like Jesus he, in, in, in um, his physical attributes, if you will. Now, James became the bishop of the Jerusalem church. Many people think that Peter was, but according to the scripture, it was James who became the first bishop. And it was reported that he spent so much time in prayer that his knees were, quote, like those of a camel. In fact, he loved to pray in the temple, and one time while he was praying there, the scribes and Pharisees had him thrown down from the top of the temple after testifying of Christ's second coming. They kept warning him to stop talking about Jesus. He says he won't, and they threw him from on top of the temple. But that wasn't the end of the story. This fall didn't kill him, so they begin to stone James after he landed. It is reported that James turned and began to pray for their forgiveness. At the sight of this, one of the priests killed James by striking him in the head with the fuller's club. So he had to be three ways just to kill him. We now come to Simon, also known as the Zealot. It is said that he ministered in Persia. He was killed by crucifixion after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. We now come to Matthias. He was the apostle chosen to replace Judas. One tradition sends him to Syria with Andrew and to death by burning. Another tradition claims he was stoned and then beheaded. We now come to two of the greatest apostles of all time, in my opinion, Peter and Paul. They both were martyred in Rome about 66 AD during the persecution under Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded, and it's interesting because one of the history says that the Roman soldier, one of the, there were two of them that were, that were beheading Paul, and one was so moved by Paul that he chose faith, Paul's faith as he was being beheaded, and then he was beheaded. Interesting, huh? Peter was crucified upside down at his request since he did not feel he was worthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. So they honored his request. They said, okay, they hung him upside down. Can you imagine just the idea of being upside down so long and crucified? 
Now, the Apostle John was still the bishop in charge of seven churches in Turkey until the first few years of the second century. Let's talk about John's death. According to church tradition, when he was old, he proceeded to lie down at the spot he wanted to die, and he preached to them. Surrounded by his closest friends in Ephesus, he closed his eyes and fell into a deep sleep, and he died at age 94 in 100 AD. In his introduction in the book of Revelation, which we read, chapter 1, verse 1, John calls himself simply a bondservant, and I find this fascinating because it is the Greek word doulos. It is used 14 times in the book of Revelation. Doulos is actually a title of honor, and the bondservant often acted as an agent of his master, representing his authority and doing the will of his master. A bondservant is a person who volunteer becomes a servant for life to a master out of love for his house. And this is the way he introduced him, a bondservant. Remember, a bondservant was a slave by choice. In fact, it literally means to be attached to the house. Why? Because when you wanted to become a bondservant, I mean, you chose to be a slave person, it's because you love that person so much, and you, and you would say to them, I want to serve you the rest of my life. And, and in order to become a bondservant, doulos in the Greek, they would... The, the, the master of the house would buy this beautiful earring and says, you now belong part of my house. And as they would pierce his ear, also pierce him to the door temporarily to understand you are now attached to this house forever. And that's the term that John uses. He says, I'm a doulos. I'm attached to the house. I'm a servant by choice. I'm not here because I have to be. I'm a slave by choice because I love the king of kings. And that should be the attitude of all of us, amen? That we're a servant by choice, not because we have to be, amen? Now, let's talk about the dating of the book of Revelation. Many theologians date it in 65 AD. I date it 96, B, um, 96 AD for a few reasons. Number one is many of the early church fathers, and who are the early church fathers? They are the disciples of the disciples. They heard the disciples preach. We have their writings. And let me just quote, or let me just give you information on three of them. Irenaeus, who lived from 103 to 202 AD, he stated the apocalypse was written at the end of Domitian's reign. Clement, another early church father who lived 150 AD to 215 AD, said John returned from Patmos after Domitian died in AD 96. Origen, another church father in AD 185 to 254, that's when he lived, he believed it was written in the time of Domitian. So I think it's quite clear that the book of Revelation was written in, at least in 96 AD because Domitian was the Roman emperor from 81 AD to 96 AD. Domitian accepted emperor worship and he called himself Lord and God in many of his letters. In fact, many of the church in that day thought he was the Antichrist. In fact, many Christians were arrested and condemned on the charge of this, listen, atheism for refusal to worship him as a visible God. Can you imagine that? Christians being accused of atheism because they would not worship a visible God. Obviously, you don't believe in the God, so they, they killed him in the name of atheism as heretics of, that believed in atheism. Now, what I want to do is I want to break down the Revelation chapter 1 by giving you seven interesting facts. Fact number one. Here it is. Fact number one is that there is a special blessing from just reading and listening to the words of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1 verse 3, blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein for the time is at hand. This is the only book 
that promises a special blessing by just reading it. Why? Because it actually is the words of Jesus. He's the one dictating it to John, and he says, if you read this, isn't it interesting that this book promises a special blessing, but it's probably the less read by most Christians? And if you study this book, and again, I'm going to take my time here, is that there's actually, it takes the time to give you seven blessings during the book. Isn't it interesting? Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is he that readeth. Revelation 14, 13, it says, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. The third blessing, Revelation 16, 15, blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garment. Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Ooh, man, that is so good. I can't wait to get there. Revelation 26, blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. There's two resurrections, and when we get to that chapter, we're going to break that down. We find the sixth blessing in Revelation 22, 7. It said, behold, I come quickly, blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Revelation chapter 22, verse 14 says, blessed are they that do his commandments. So we find there is a special blessing for those who read this. And if you search it like we just diligently did, we find there are actually seven that you can claim for your life. Isn't that beautiful? Amen. Fact number two. In verses four and five, which we're about to read, it begins to talk about the Trinity doctrine. So let's go to Revelation chapter one, verse four and five. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, and unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Immediately, the first thing John does begins to break down the Trinity, that God is one God, but he manifests himself in three persons. Amen. And we find this from Genesis to Revelation. The first verse of the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the what? Heavens and the earth. That word God is Elohim, which means plural, the gods. And it's not talking about that God is three gods. He's one God manifested in three forms. Amen. Or in three persons is a better way to put it. Amen. But we see this in this, in this verse. The Father is mentioned by the way he uses which is and which was and which is to come. Then he mentions the Son in verse 5 by saying, and from Jesus. And then he talks about the Holy Spirit. He says, from the seven spirits which are before his throne. The seven spirits before the throne are the sevenfold power of the Holy Spirit. See, again, this language seems unfamiliar to us because it actually comes from the Old Testament. What do you mean the seven spirits of God? People always go, Pastor, what's the seven spirits of God? The seven spirits of God is just one spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. But he manifests himself in seven characteristics. Does that make sense? It's a term that comes from actually Isaiah chapter 11. Let's go there. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 2, and you will see the seven spirits of God. It says, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, a branch shall grow out of its roots, and the spirit of the Lord, one, shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom, two, and understanding, three, and the spirit of counsel, four, and might, five, the spirit of knowledge, and of the fear of the Lord, six and seven. So you see there's a sevenfold power of the Holy Ghost mentioned in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, and the Bible calls them the seven spirits of God. Amen? Now, let me show you, you're probably familiar with that, but let me show you something that you probably aren't familiar that's exciting. Some theologians see Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 2, is not showing the seven spirits of God, but only showing three of them. 
What do I mean by that? They will interpret this as looking at, and it says, and the spirit of the Lord, that there they're mentioning the Holy Ghost. And then the next three are three of the sevenfold spirits of God. For example, they would look at it this way, that one, you have the spirit of wisdom and understanding, two, the spirit of counsel and might, three, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and you have to search the scriptures to find the rest. The fourth one is found in John chapter 14, 17, where it says, even the spirit of truth. So the spirit of truth is the fourth. And then you have to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13, to find the fifth, which it says, we have in the same spirit of faith. So the spirit of faith is the fifth. Then you have to go to Romans 1, 4 to find the sixth one. And it says, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. So six is this, the sixth spirit is the spirit of holiness. And then to find the seventh one, you have to go to Revelation 19.10. And it says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the seventh spirit is the spirit of prophecy. So it even widens the understanding of the Holy Spirit when you look at it from that frame point. Amen? Notice the numbers of seven over and over. Why? Because seven is the number of what? Completeness. This is God's final book. This is the completion of all things. Amen? In fact, you'll find, how, how do we know that seven is the number of completeness? Just look at, there are seven days in a week, right? There are seven colors in the rainbow. There are seven notes in a musical scale. Amen? And seven is the most common number in biblical prophecy. In fact, the number occurs 42 times in the book of Daniel and in Revelation alone. In fact, let's look at them. You have that chart I created for you. Look at some of the sevens in the book of Revelation. You have seven churches, seven spirits, seven candlesticks, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders, 7,000 slain in a great earthquake, seven heads, seven crowns, seven last plagues, seven golden vials, seven mountains. I think God's trying to communicate something. That this is the completion of all things. Now, some people think the number seven represents perfection. If that's, that's not the case, or else Satan would be called perfect because he has seven horns on his head. Come on, he's not perfect, right? No, seven represents completion. Amen? Seven horns on Satan would represent complete power. So know that seven represents what? Completion. Amen? You also have seven kings mentioned, and also in Revelation 18. Amen? 17 and 18. Now, fact number three. John confirms that Jesus is the author of the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ. Isn't it fascinating that the book of Hebrews calls Jesus an author? Look at Hebrews 12.2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our what? Now you say, what book did he write? Well, try the book of Revelation. Twice John calls him the author. Amen. How many know that Jesus is an author? In fact, John further says in his gospel, John, he actually calls Jesus the word. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. How many know that Jesus, not only is he the author, but he claims to be the words in his authorship. He's, that's why he's called the living word. Come on, talk to me. He's the word in action, amen? And that's what God's trying to get us to do, to be the word in action, the living word, Amen. Fact number four, man, we're doing good. Are you bored yet? Because you're real quiet. You guys are studying. Okay. Fact number four are the titles of Jesus. The titles of Jesus is fascinating. In chapter one, there are a number of strange phrases or titles applied to Jesus Christ that may be unfamiliar to the ears, again, because the origin is from the Old Testament. In Revelation 1.5, let's read it. The faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. I'm reading the latter part of the verse. Notice these three phrases 
They all originate from the Old Testament. But here's what's interesting about them. These three titles used in this verse are labels in chapter one, and they become books, our identities for the rest of the book. For example, that first title, The Faithful Witness, this will be his title in chapters two and three, in which he speaks to the seven churches who are his witnesses. Witness is the Greek word martis, and it comes, it's where we get the word martyr, which has come to mean one who dies for the faith. So Jesus is the faithful witness of what God is, amen, even to, unto the death. The second title mentioned in verse 5 is the first begotten of the dead. Now, this title is introduced in chapters 4 and 5 where Jesus is recognized and is revealed as the kinsman redeemer of Adam who was stepped forward in chapters 4 and 5 to take the seven-sealed book which no man is worthy to read but Christ because of his cross and resurrection. That's why he's called first begotten of the dead. And that her whole first begotten, our firstborn, its meaning means first importance or prominence. It doesn't mean the actual first one born. It means the first in prominence, first in importance, not necessarily the first to be born or to be raised from the dead. The third title used in verse 5 is the prince of the kings of the earth. A better translation of prince is ruler, the ruler of the kings of the earth. And the rest of the book of Revelation deals with Christ taking up his rulership on the earth. So these three titles absolutely are in many ways an outline of the whole book. But by tracking these terms, you will discover that this book of Revelation, God's magnum opus, is a, is skillfully, it's a skillfully structured book. In fact, there are actually 26 titles and descriptions to Jesus in the book of Revelation. Look at that chart. I'm not going to read them all, but look at the faithful witness in chapter 1. Verse 5, the first one from the dead, chapter 1, verse 5. The ruler of the kings of the earth, 1, verse 5. The alpha and the omega, someone like the son of man, the first lamp, the living one. We can continue. There are 26. Now, you may be saying, Pastor, why are you so fascinated that there are 26 titles? Because it just so happens in Gematria, which is Bible mathematics, that 26, are you ready for this? Is the gematric number of the sum of the four Hebrew characters, yad heh vah that make up the name of Yehovah are the name of the God of Israel. The ultimate title. Also, if you look in the strong concordance, you find that the, the 26th word in the Greek dictionary happens to be agape, which is what? Love. God is love. Love is God, right? It's interesting that in Psalm 36, you find this expression verbatim in English and in the original Hebrew, for his mercy endures forever. I find that fascinating. And according to Jewish chronology, God gave the Torah in this, the 26th generation since creation. What's my point? Jesus in all these titles is manifested as God, love, and the living word also represented the number 26. That's deep. See, this book is so well-structured. It's from an outside source. Come on, someone talk to me. Now, according to Revelation 1, 6, let's read it. And he hath made his kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Believers will reign with Christ in the kingdom age of Christ to come. Now, why do I find this fascinating? Because this is a fulfillment of God's original intention for us that we would be a kingdom of priests. 
Go back to the Old Testament, Exodus 19, 6. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. God originally wanted a kingdom, a whole nation of priests. But the children of Israel rejected. They said, we don't want to hear God. Moses, you go hear God and you tell us. And God had to wait for a whole new generation. And finally, in the book of Revelation, I finally have my kingdom of priests. Amen? What does that mean? He made us kings because we're supposed to rule. Come on, talk to me. 1 Corinthians 4.8, now you are a fool, you are rich, you have reigned as kings without us, Paul says. And you say, well, pastor, what are we ruling? Oh, are you ready for this? Look at 1 Corinthians 6, 2 through 3. Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? I don't understand the fullness of this, but the Bible says he called us to be kings so that we can actually judge angels and peoples. Fascinating. That's why he's called king of kings and lord of, come on, look at your neighbor, say hi, Lord. Look at your other neighbor, say hi, king. Amen. There we go. He also made his priests to offer sacrifices. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, it talks about we are royal priesthood. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, the Bible says we offer the sacrifice of praise. That's our job as priests. Amen? Now, the Bible tells us, let's read Revelation 1, 7. Let's go to the next verse. And behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him, and all kindred of the earth shall well because of him, even so amen. So the Bible tells us he is returning as king of kings and lord of lords, and we see this manifest in Revelation 19, and the whole world will know it. The Bible says all eyes will see him. No one will miss this event. It says even those who pierced him will take part in this event. All humanity will mourn when they realize what they did to him. And what's interesting, this verse we just read was prophesied first by, the, by Zechariah. Let's go to Zechariah 12.10. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So one day the whole world, when he comes in the second coming, they will know the one whom they pierced was their Messiah. He was the king. He was the Lord. And every eye shall see him, past, present, and future. Isn't that amazing? Now, let's keep on going with these titles. In Revelation 1.8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. Isn't it interesting that Jesus shares the same title as Father, which is, which was, and which is to come? Now, what's fascinating is this title, Alpha and Omega. Why do I find that fascinating? Because Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet. Omega is the last. It's the beginning and the ending of the Greek alphabet. And he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, Jesus is eternal. He always was, always is, and he always will be. And I find that this is now documented in science. You're saying it is. If you read an article called Can Numbers Explain the Universe by the Institute of Mathematics, it explains that numbers are so important that they are called physical constants of the universe, and without them, you wouldn't exist. This article says that without numbers, you wouldn't exist. And guess what they say is the most important number? They call it alpha. Listen to this. It says this constant determines how strongly particles stick together. Your whole coming together by particles is, call, is done by the number alpha. Come on. In him we move, live, and have our being. But science calls it alpha. 
If alpha was different, atoms and molecules couldn't form. In other words, your very existence depends upon the value of alpha. And mom, I can go on and on. But so according to scientists, your whole beginning starts with alpha. That sounds familiar. Are you ready for this? This will blow your mind. In another article called The 13 Most Important Numbers in the Universe by James D. Stein of Popular Mechanics, he places the value of a constant known as omega as number 13. In other words, in this other article, it says the whole ending of the universe, they call it, it, it's, it, it ends with a number called omega. This is science. Omega is the scientific explanation of the end of the universe by way of gravitational attraction that brings the galaxies back together in a big crunch. The tipping point is called omega, according to this article. So here you have two mathematical constants called alpha omega, which scientifically marks the universe's beginning and the end. And Jesus goes, by the way, I am the alpha and the omega. Come on. Come on. Hallelujah. But he said this thousand years before we even understood these constants. Hallelujah. Fact number five. Are you bored yet? You ready to continue? Fact number five. This letter from Jesus was written to the church. That's the fifth fact. John was on the Isle of Patmos, a modern-day version of Alcatraz, for preaching and teaching the Word of God, Revelation 1.9. I, John who also am your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was in the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was specifically chosen for this message. Look at verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Let me break this down for a minute. In the spirit. This phrase occurs four times in Revelation 110, 4-2, 17-3, and 21-10. What does it mean in the spirit? This phrase literally means in the Greek that John was in a supernatural state of inspiration as he wrote, not of his own doing. This was a, not of his own doing, but supernaturally done by the Holy Spirit. And notice he said he was on the Lord's day. And this is really controversial because there are four interpretations of the Lord's day. Let me give you them. What was John talking about on the Lord's day? First interpretation, some teach that it was the Sabbath day. That would be a Saturday. But if it was on the Sabbath, why didn't he just say, I was in the Spirit on the, on the Sabbath? Number two, some interpret it as it was a Sunday, which is the Christian first day of the week, because Jesus resurrected on the, on the Sunday, first day of the week. But why not say, I was in the Spirit on the first day of the week? Right? The third interpretation, some people, very few, teach that this was the day of the Lord, which, according to Daniel 9.27, is the day of judgment. So he said, I was on the Lord's day, the day of judgment. Let me give you a fourth interpretation. I had to do my research, and I think this is the answer. In Greek time, the first day of each month, check this out, was called the imperial day, when the emperor was celebrated. This is the possible meaning, because you have here the real king Christ revealing himself as the true king, and is revealing his day, the day of the Lord, that was coming. So it's quite possible that that is what John was referring to, that it was the imperial day, the first day of the month, and he's referring to King Jesus. Now, he, it is written in this verse, um, verse 10, that he heard a great voice as of a trumpet. And the whole idea of, of, of a trumpet means that this was, this, this, it was loud and clear. In other words, it wasn't, you know, some people say, I think I heard God speak. No, there was no doubting. It was like a trumpet. Woo! It was loud. Amen? John knew what he heard. He didn't have to guess what God was saying. Amen? This was not the still small voice. This was the loud uh, voice that sounded like many waters. Amen? So John is commanded to write down what he sees and to send it to seven specific churches. Look at Revelation 1.11. It 
saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what, and what thou seest, write in a book and send it into the seven churches which are in Asia, unto Ephesus, unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. Man, when I get into those next two chapters, start next week, you don't want to miss because it will blow you away, the revelation in this verse alone. But these were actual historical churches in Asia that John was writing to, that Jesus said, write this letter to these seven churches. Now, why these seven churches? Because these seven churches represent the entire history of the church and the life of the believer. So even though he wrote to seven churches, which seven is the number of completeness, it represented the total church. Does that make sense? Okay. Fact number six. And we're doing good. We got only two more facts. Fact number six is the description of Jesus. In fact, let's look at this. Revelation chapter one, verse 13 through 16. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the son of man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt about the paths with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet were like in the fine brass if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Remember that. And out of his mouth went a sharp to a sword, and his countenance was the sun shineth in its strength. So we find that there are seven golden candlesticks revealed that Jesus is walking in the midst of them. Now I need to explain this to you that this is not the seven branch Jewish menorah. The word candlestick is the Greek word luknia, which means lampstand. These are seven individual lampstands. In fact, peasants used the branch of a bush that was usually sturdy enough to hold a lamp. They would then stick that branch in a corner, anchor it, and set the lamp on it. Big cities like Ephesus had iron workers who made six-foot posts with a little tripod on the bottom and the little fingers on the top to hold the lamp to light up a room. And you can even see it in the picture of Jesus with those seven lampstands. That's pretty much how they looked. Now, who is in the midst of these seven lampstands? Jesus. And it's interesting because here is the first of only two descriptions of Jesus in the New Testament. There are no physical descriptions except for this one, but they both are found in the book of Revelation. The second one is found in Revelation 19. And it describes him as clothed with a robe that reached to his feet, a golden sash around his chest. Now that's fascinating because kings wore sashes around their chest, servants around the waist. So even where he's wearing the sash declares this is the king, amen? It says his head and hair were like wool and snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Feet like glowing brass, voice sound like many waters, his face shine like the sun. And it's interesting, in this verse, it calls him the son of man. And again, this term comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the book of Daniel. And it's interesting because guess what? Daniel is the only Old Testament prophet to give a physical description of Jesus. You want to see it? It's found in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. It says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the son of man. So who's he talking about? Jesus. And he came with the clouds of heaven and he came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. And notice what it says in Daniel chapter 7 verse 9. And I beheld to the thrones were cast down and the ancient of days did sit whose garment was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery, fiery flame and his wheels as a burning fire. So here his physical description is very similar to what? John's. His garments were white as snow, his hair like wool, his throne was like a blazing flame. And then notice that Jesus, his right hand, he holds seven stars. Look at Revelation 1.16. 
And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp to its sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. So the scripture says that there was a two-edged sword proceeding out from his mouth, and the word of God is a two-edged sword. According to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, it says, for the word of God is quick and powerful. In other words, it's not like he literally had a two-edged sword come out of his mouth. It's, it's a representation of the word of what? God. Why? Because it's a two-edged sword because it can wound and heal at the same time. If you ain't doing right, it can wound you. But if, you're, if you want to repent, it can heal you. Amen? The word of God. Are you following me? Now, what's interesting, it says he had a sword. And it's interesting because this word is rompea, meaning a long sword of judgment. Now, why am I explaining this? Because most of the time when it talks about the word of God as a sword, it uses the short sword, the, the short sword that the Romans used to win, what, a thousand years of battles. But this is a different sword. It's a long sword. And even according to Thayer Dictionary, it was a long Thracian javelin, also a kind of long sword inclined to be worn on the right shoulder. And why am I stating this? Because this long sword is the one that Jesus comes with in Revelation 19 to hack his enemies. So it's a specific, I mean, it's a long sword. It means I, I did not come to play. Come on, amen? When he came on earth, he whipped him with some, some, a strap, but when he comes back, he's come with a sword, amen? His face shines like the sun at noon position, according to the scripture. His strength is so pure and holy that we can't look at him with earthly eyes. It's like trying to look at the sun on a hot summer day. You can only do it for a few seconds, then you have to turn away. That's the inscription that John has given here. Now, John, when he, when he saw Jesus, he could not continue to stand on his feet during this encounter. Let's hear this, Revelation 1, 17 through 19. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. It had been 60 years since John had seen Jesus. So he recognized, he goes, it's the son of man, but this is not the way. Well, he probably, the only time he saw him was at his transfiguration. Amen. And then Jesus placed his right hand upon him and says, fear not. Look at your neighbor and say, fear not. Because many people, when they read this book, they begin to fear, but the Lord says, fear not. Amen. And then it says that Jesus holds the keys to hell and death. Why is that important to know? Because when Jesus died, the Bible says he descended into hell and he preached to the souls that were in prison, 1 Peter 3.19, by which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. What you got to understand, here's what a lot of people don't understand. Nobody went to heaven until Jesus came. Even the Old Testament saints, they went into a place called Abraham's bosom, our paradise, and it was a holding tank that was actually located in hell, opposite of hell. It was a place of rest, but it was in hell. And, and no one go to heaven because Jesus said, I am the door. And so even the Old Testament saints had to wait. And can you imagine when they saw Jesus coming down, descending into hell? And he says, I have the keys of hell and death. And the Bible says the moment he resurrected up, that in Ephesians it said he led them that were in captivity out of captive. Amen? He led the captives out of captivity. And even in the book and all over the scriptures, talk about and dead people begin to appear after he resurrected, right? Because even Moses, think of them, Abraham, they didn't go to heaven. They went to paradise. And Jesus took them to heaven. Amen? Hallelujah. So he goes, hey, John, 
You don't have to be afraid because I have the keys, man, and we're buddies. Come on. Isn't that awesome? Now, verse 19 is probably the most important verse in all of the book of Revelation because it contains its only divinely inspired outline in three divisions. Look at Revelation 119. Write these things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. This is a divine outline given by Jesus of the whole book of Revelation. Division one, it says, write which thou hast seen. That's the past, the vision of Christ found in chapter one. Then he says, Division two is found when he says, write those things which are, which is the present. And that's chapters two and three, seven letters to the seven churches. And then division three is when Jesus said, and write those things which shall be hereafter, which is the future. The word hereafter is the Greek word metotauta. It means after these things. In chapter four through 22 is metotauta. Now, I want to give you a point to ponder here. So John wrote in chapter one what he saw. In chapters two and three, he writes things which are during this present age, the things of the church. In chapters 4 through 22, he's going to write of things that transpire after the things of the church. Let's take a sneak peek to chapter 4, verse 1. And he says, and after this, right there, just stop there. You know what that word is? Metatauta, which Jesus said, write these things hereafter. What's my point? Chapters 2 and 3 is the church age. And then when he goes on to the tribulation, he says, Metatauta, the things after. So many people have interpreted that the church won't be here because he says all these events happen after the church age. Are you following me in Greek? That's where we come with the pre-trib um, tribulation rapture. I'm going to teach you on all three. But I want you to see, even in the beginning of the book, he's saying, and write, he says, write the things which are, the vision, or, or which was, write the things which are, the, um, which was the churches. Then he writes the things hereafter. And then right after he talks to the churches in chapters two and three, he starts with metatauta in Greek, hereafter. And then he starts talking about the seven years. Make sense? Okay. So you enter into the third section of the book when you get into chapter 4. The future aspect of the book begins at that point, And this passage is key to understanding the book, verse 19. Now, I want you to look at that chart I made you. That, this chart alone took me 10 hours. And this chart I made for you because if something happened to me, you have the whole teaching of Revelation in one eye view. Notice it says, write the things which thou hast seen, the vision of Christ. Look in the middle, write the things which are the seven churches and, are, and write the things which shall be after these things. And you have all those events, the seven years of tribulation. So if we look at another way of outlining this, chapter one is the vision of Christ. Chapters two through three is the seven churches. Chapters four through 19 is the seven years of tribulation. So that's another way you can outline it. You got it? Now we're going to come to fact seven, and we're going to close. The mystery of the stars. Now, where are the stars located? In his what? In his hands. Jesus reveals the mystery of the stars and the seven golden candlesticks. Look at Revelation 1.20. The mystery of the seven stars, which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. So we don't have to try to interpret it. Jesus interprets it himself. Notice the seven stars that, that John saw in the vision are angels of the seven churches. This could be a reference to the angels that are assigned to and watch over each church. The seven stars could also represent the leaders or the pastors or the leadership of the seven churches. Why? Because the English word angel comes from the Greek word angelus, means messenger. So those seven stars represent the seven pastors that represent the leadership of that church. And then he says the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. 
There are actually seven golden lampstands, and Jesus walking in the midst of them, one for each seven churches. And what is the Bible, what is this vision trying to portray? It's trying to portray the church as a light bearer. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, it says, You are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill that cannot be hid. So the purpose of the church, we learn in this vision, is to be a light in this world of darkness. Does that make sense? They were lighted candles. Each church should be a light unto itself. Amen? Now, I want to unveil a mystery to you that's profound. Are you ready for this? In the book of Amos, God names the constellation Orion, and he claims he is the originator of it, and also he names the seven stars known as the Pleiades. Let's go there. Amos chapter 5, verse 8. I'm about to show you something. This is beautiful. I'm going to close with something beautiful. Seek him that maketh the seven stars in Dorion. So the prophet says, it's God who named all these stars. He named Orion. He named the seven stars, known as Pleiades. And it says, if you seek a little bit of knowledge about them, you'll be drawn even closer to God. So let's learn something about them. Since the Bible says, seek him that make the seven stars. Let's talk about the Pleiades for a moment. It consists of seven stars. These stars are indeed gravitationally bound together in a cluster. They appear in the November skies and are located above Orion's left shoulder, which where six icy blue stars can be seen in the shape of a little dipper, smaller than the moon. Binoculars reveal dozens of additional stars in the Pleiades group. The stars are 400 light years away, but are actually near neighbors of the Earth in the Milky Way galaxy. The Greek Pleiades were seven sisters named Alcyone, Sterope, Electra, Selene, Maya, Merope, and Tigeta. Atlas was their father and Pleione was their mother, according to Greek tradition. But Amos declared that by studying these seven stars, it should cause you to seek the creator. In the Bible, the Pleiades, also called the seven stars, are mentioned seven times in scripture. Isn't that interesting? You want them? Job 9.9, Job 38.31, Amos 5.8, Revelation 1.16, Revelation 1.20, Revelation 2.1, Revelation 3.1. Now, what's interesting, according to the scripture, it says, when you study this and you understand them, it causes you to seek God even more. And when you go to Revelation, chapter 1, verse 20, it tells you that this group of seven stars known as the Pleiades represents the seven churches. Look at The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Here's what's interesting. According to Astronomy in the Bible by Donald B. DeYoung, quote, there is a cluster of stars known as the Pleiades. This word, which means the congregation of the judge or ruler, comes to us to the Greek Septuagint as the translation of the Hebrew kima, which means the heap or accumulation. Did you just hear that? The Pleiades, the seven stars, go back to them. Show those seven stars. They're called the Pleiades. The translation of Pleiades means the congregation of the ruler. So those seven stars in, in Revelations, these seven stars are the seven churches. And Amos says, look at these seven stars, and their name means the congregation of the ruler. In other words, those seven stars represent the seven churches of Revelation, but represents all of us. But we're not done. You know what's even more fascinating about this? They're located, the seven stars of the Pleiades are located in the constellation of Taurus. You're saying, so what? Well, you know what's interesting? The seven churches of Asia Minor were located on the Taurus Mountains. Are you ready for this? Go to the last picture. I'm going to stay away from my notes. If you take 
a map of the stars and you superimpose it over the map of where the churches were in Turkey, they match perfectly. What's my point? God, thousands of years before the church has created the map, and he called it the congregation ruler, just to show you that he created the stars and placed them there so that you would know. And then later on, thousands of years, the church would appear in those exact places at the same place, and you can superimpose that map, and they're located at the same place. Come on. Um, I think he's trying to tell us he's the king of heaven and earth. There's another revelation in that because he says, and the stars are in my what? Isn't it interesting in Isaiah 49, 6, and he says, and you are inscribed on the palms of my hands. Did you know that every believer, he, your names are written in his hands? And then to prove it, John sees a vision and here's Christ and he has these seven stars on the palm of his hands because that's you, that's me, baby. And what's even more fascinating, in John 10, 28, he says, and you know what? Fear not, John, because a lot of people are going to fear what I'm about to tell you, but you don't have to fear because, ready? No man can take you out of my hand. <laughs> Where's that? That's John what? 10, 28. I think what Jesus is trying to tell us is that our faith is in his hands. And that even though some of the things I might say might be very troubling, we don't have to worry because like he said to John, I can say to you, fear not because we're in his hands. Amen. Amen. And I want to leave with one last verse, John chapter 14, verse 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let it be what? Afraid. So in this time while we study this book of Revelation, well, we did really good, didn't we? How many of you understand at least chapter one better than you ever have? Amen? You understand that Revelation 19 is the most, or Roar 19 is the breakdown of the whole book. So you know the rest of the book outline. You know the vision of Christ, what it represents. And we're going to move into the what? The seven churches, right? You don't want to miss. It's going to take me maybe um, um, probably seven weeks to do this. Because I'm going to take each church. And you know what's amazing? It will blow your mind. Oh, this is so mind-blowing. When you read the letter to the seven churches, Jesus outlines the next 2,000 years of church history. It will blow your mind. You know, how can this be? He mentioned it. You got to know history. That's why I think the devil tries to take history out of school. Because if you don't know history, you don't know what's going on. But he literally outlines the next 2,000 years of church history. And I'm going to break that down for you. You're going to go, wow. Right? And what our fate is and our job on the earth. How many excited about that? Right? Let's stand in the house of the Lord. Let's pray. Man, wow. You know what? We need to do one last thing. One last thing. Every head bowed, every eye clothed. If you've never asked Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what does that mean? You've never said, I want you to come. I want you to be part of my life. I want to give my life over to you. Because the Bible says the only way to have eternal life, altar workers, please come on up. The only way to have eternal life is by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Believing that what he did on the cross was for you. For Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man can come into the Father but by me. No man. Jesus said that he was the only way of salvation. He died on the cross, not for his sins, but for your sins. So that you can go to heaven. And the way to claim that 
the scripture tells us is to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and to believe in our heart that God rose him from the dead and he shall be saved. I'd like to give you that opportunity to have eternal life right now. You cannot earn it. You just ask God to forgive your sins. You ask him, you claim his promises for your life in a prayer and you will be saved. If you've never done that before, you've never asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart, but you'd like to today, will you raise your hand right now? If that's you, if you've never asked Jesus Christ, you've never said, here's my life, I give it over to you. Would you raise your hand? I want to give you one last opportunity. Amen. For those who are watching online, there's many of you out there. If you've never asked Jesus to come into your life, I'd like to lead you into that prayer today. Congregation, will you say it with me? Let's say it together. Father, we believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I give you my life. I believe, Jesus, you died for me and you rose again on the third day. Take my life. Fill my life with your spirit. I completely give it over to you. Write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life and fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Amen. Come on, give the Lord a big hand of praise. We thank you for your participation in another broadcast of A Radiant Moment. This broadcast is brought to you by the generous giving and donations of our listening audience. If this program has been a blessing to your life, you can help us expand our listening audience by giving a financial donation at RadiantLifeAZ.com. Simply click the online giving tab and fill out the amount God has placed in your heart. For service times, live streaming, and location, visit us online at RadiantLifeAZ.com. Tune in next time as we bring another relevant and radiant word for your life today. Until next time, and remember, God loves you. Thank you.